you know our habit here is to uh, choose a book of the Bible and then to work our way through it consecutively from the beginning to the end in a systematic way. We've gotten to that point in the book of Proverbs that it just doesn't lend itself necessarily to doing that uh, because just of the arrangement of uh, the main body of Proverbs starting in chapter 10, uh, you know, Proverbs are just kind of all over the place. So we're going to be doing it differently for a little bit. We're just going to be going topically, picking topics out of Proverbs. And so this is the point where I usually tell you that uh, the, sermon is, or the, the sermon text rather is printed in the bulletin, but I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. This week, that's really not as helpful. The, the, cer- the uh, bulletin is probably easier to follow along with because you can see there, we're looking at a selection of verses that are from Proverbs. And I also put two at the bottom there. Uh, from the New Testament that pick up on the same theme. Uh, The first Peter verse, I believe, is even quoting out of Proverbs. And so I am going to read these verses uh, in the order that they're printed there in the bulletin. Uh, But it's still God's word, and so I'll still ask if you're able, would you please join me in standing uh, as we read and as we listen to the reading of God's holy word today. Uh, This is the word of the Lord, Proverbs, starting in 10.12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. And then 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Let's pray to the Lord together. Father, we're So thankful for your word. We're thankful for the book of Proverbs, for the wisdom that you so freely give to all those who believe, who trust, who who ask. And so, Lord, we ask. We want to discover your wisdom. We want to learn it deeply. We want it to uh, become ingrained in our hearts and in our minds. And we want to live in a way that is honoring to Christ. So we pray for the power of your spirit, Lord, to, to teach us your word, to be our guide, uh, today, even even now, as we come to sit at your feet as your students. So, Lord, teach us your word, we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I came across this phrase recently, and it's one that is stuck in my mind and that uh, will be informing much of what we do. The phrase is this, gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Which is to say that in some ways a church can be defined by two things. 
Jesus. It can be defined, of course, by its doctrine. If you have a, a reasonable sample size of the doctrine of any church, uh, what it preaches, what it teaches, what it holds to, it's fairly easy to measure if the doctrine of a given church is healthy, whether it's sound, whether it's biblical, gospel, doctrine. Uh, but there's a second thing, and that is also there's the culture of a given church. There's the doctrine, but there's also the culture, and that is far trickier to get a handle on uh, because the culture of a church is made up of kind of intangibles. It's made up of things like the quality of relationships, uh, the values, the shared sense of a vision of what we want the church to be, uh, the priorities, expectations, even unspoken standards. These are sort of intangible things that, that taken all together give a sense of what the culture of any given church is like. And, and the culture of a church, uh, even though it's maybe harder to get a hold of, is vastly important. It's incredibly important. Uh, think of this. Think of what Jesus says in John chapter 13 when he says to his disciples that they will know we are Christians by our love. He doesn't say they'll know we are Christians by our doctrine, right? but he points first to the culture that exists between the followers of Jesus. Which means it's not enough for a church to have gospel doctrine, but rather that doctrine, when it's proclaimed faithfully, when it's taught in every area of the church, when it's believed, when it's held onto right, by all the members of the church, what, what happens is that doctrine will begin to filter down as it were, into every area of life. And it will begin to shape and inform the culture of the church. Right? They can't re really ever be separated, but we must be intentional, intentional rather, about uh, shaping the culture of our church in line with good gospel doctrine. Now, one of the things that I really like about the book of Proverbs is that Proverbs... These ones we've just read, the, kind of the classic Proverbs, these sayings of wisdom, are great for opening up conversations about the culture of our church, culture of our families, even the culture of our own heart, just individually. Right? Very rarely, if you're having a, a conversation about doctrine or you know, theology, only rarely do we ever go to Proverbs in order to prove a point of doctrine. But Proverbs is great at exposing the culture that exists in a church or beginning to talk about the culture. For example, uh, chapter 10, verse 11, and uh, this comes right before the main verse of the morning, which is chapter 10, verse 12. Uh, and so perhaps I should have read this also. Chapter 10, verse 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Now, very rarely will you prove a point of doctrine by going to a verse like that. But if you want to open up a conversation about the power of our words and, and the power of the way that we speak to one another, uh, just the power of our interactions and, and how they shape uh, the culture of a relationship and how it's possible that our, our words can be life-giving and can form a culture of openness and honesty and trust. Or if they are violent, it's possible for our words to, to cultivate this culture of, of uh, fear 
and suspicion and distrust and anxiety. If you want to get into that conversation, that's a great verse because it tells you the quality of our words. They can be a fountain of life or they can, be, uh, they can conceal violence. So that's what Proverbs does. Uh, and so today what I want to do is, is to dig into how we create a culture of grace and forgiveness in our church and in our families, right? how we have this culture of uh, what chapter 10, verse 12 says, love covers all offenses. That's what I want to talk about. That's, that's our, our main verse, love covers all offenses. And not to simply talk about, therefore, the, like the doctrine of grace or the doctrine of forgiveness, but to get into the, what, what it means for us to have in our churches, in our families, in our relationships, a culture of grace and a culture of forgiveness, where these sorts of things are, are felt, not just believed. And so, to talk about this idea, love covers all offenses, is on the one hand, you know, that's so straightforward. Right? It's so simple, and yet so difficult to put into practice, isn't it? Uh, to, to forgive, to overlook an offense, when that offense is, is against you, right? When you are the one that's offended. So I'm just going to take this in kind of two main points today. And uh, First, to talk about what it looks like that this is an act of gospel love. And then second, how to create this as a culture in our churches and in our families. So to overlook an offense, this is an act of gospel love. It's an act of gospel love. Thinking again about what I just read in verse 11... The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. It is a fountain of life. Think about that image for a moment. And when we think about uh, the fountain of life, don't think about, you know, the fountains at the Bellagio or the fountains, you know, at the Rose Garden by the Natural History Museum, these beautiful decorative fountains that are only good for looking at or maybe throwing pennies in. Think rather about... uh, life-giving fountains, particularly think about the, you know, the wells that so many of the stories of the Gospels are centered around. Why was it that in the, the ancient Near East, cities were built around wells or fountains of water? Well, we know why. It was because water was a scarce commodity. Right? You couldn't get it everywhere in the desert. And so where there was water or this flowing fountain... They would dig a well there, and that became the center of life, right? The, the community gathered around that. And so we have so many stories in the Bible that take place because people are meeting one another at these wells. Flowing fountains, most of the time, were not on private property. Rather, they were the center of the community's life together. Right? They gave life to everyone. They brought people together. I think what the proverb is saying is the mouth of the righteous is like that well. It is necessary for the life of a healthy community. Right? It gives life to all. Right? Because what it says is it's kind, it's edifying, it's building everyone up. And so Proverbs would say, you know, proper speech, uh, honest speech, it's, it's life-giving. It's not merely good, it's not merely right and correct but it gives life to those who hear. Right? It gives life to the whole community that it's a part of. All who are around it experience the benefits. Now, Proverbs is going to go on and say all kinds of things about the importance and the power of our speech, uh, and we'll get back to a lot of them later 
in later sermons, but the one I want to talk about today is right here in verse 12, the next verse, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all offenses. Let's just think about that one verse for a moment. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So both halves of this verse, they, they assume that an offense has already been committed. The difference is how now do you respond to it, right? So uh, if we are kind of thinking of the scene, imagine a scene where there's two people, one of them offends the other, but now is, we have to hit pause, right? And there's two options. How does the person respond? How does the person respond? So hatred will take that strife, and it says hatred stirs up strife, right? That, That's a poignant image. Hatred just takes that offense and it stirs it up and it gets it all over everybody, right? It makes a mess of it. Love quickly covers it over, right? Love covers that offense over so that it doesn't get all over everybody, so that it doesn't hurt everyone who is around. Hatred stirs it up. Love covers it over. Have you been offended at all lately? I mean, of course you have, right? We all have. Right? If, if, you, if you ever come into contact with other humans, there's a good chance you will be offended right? on a pretty regular basis. I, I don't think this verse is talking about anything special or anything strange or anything foreign to our experience. It's talking about stuff that happens to us every day. And it can be any size of offense. Right? From the very smallest kinds of incidental offenses you know, that we know the person didn't even mean anything by it all the way to very large offenses where we know the person did mean something by it, right? And they did it anyway on purpose. But any kind of offense is covered by this verse, right? Whether that's a crime against you or an offense against your your personal property, right? Or, you know, an offense that just hurts your feelings or or a bigger offense that someone does something, you know, backstabbing at work. Right, where people are playing these mean games or these, these political machinations. There's all kinds of ways that we're offended. Big things, little things, everything in between. Um, I, you know, sometimes I think we get the, the image that the, pers- the wise person of Proverbs just has thick skin. Now, that might be true. I, I think it probably is true, but it's much more than that. Right? Because it's not just that the person of Proverbs is not easily offended. This verse begins by assuming they have been offended, right? An offense has been committed. They are offended. What's different is that they now make a decision that they choose to let love cover over an offense, which is important because we're all, we all get offended every day, right? People sin against us. People hurt us, like we said, intentionally and unintentionally. People will offend and they will sin and they will hurt us, but we have a decision in how we respond And Proverbs says, love covers over an offense. Now, sometimes it feels like we're not even aware that that's an option. We feel like we have to do something. We have to respond. We have to respond in kind and return offense for offense. Proverbs says, if you love the person, you cover over it. What does that mean? I think it means that when you love somebody, you will freely and graciously offer them forgiveness when they wrong you. Now, that can play out in several different ways, I believe. So one thing it might mean is, is that you cover over the offense and you forgive that person by 
talking through it. Right? Maybe there is a confrontation, but you talk through it. Uh, you accept their apology when they offer it. You, you grant that forgiveness. And you don't hold it over their head. Right? You, you make it your goal to forgive and to forget. That you're not going to kind of keep this in your back pocket as a card you're going to play against them in the future. But that you don't hold that against them. That's one thing it might look like. Right? That's one way of covering an offense is receiving an apology, which is not always easy to do. Sometimes I think covering over an offense can mean forgiving them and granting that forgiveness immediately without even bringing up the fact that they have offended you. Right? We don't always have to bring things up. We don't always have to work through them together and make a big deal of it. Sometimes we have that option where we can just say, I'm just going to let love cover over this offense. Right? I'm going to absorb this hit and go on my way, and I'm not going to let that make a rift in the relationship. Right? And we do that out of love to cover over that offense. We simply go on our way. We don't make an issue of it. I think Proverbs 12.16 tells us that's an option. Right? 12.16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. The prudent ignores an insult. They don't insult back. They don't immediately jump to self-defense. They don't mutter under their breath and spend the next 10 minutes rehearsing comebacks that they could have used if they'd been just a little quicker on the draw. And imagine what they're going to say next time. No, they ignore it. They let it go. They move on. Again, don't we sometimes forget that's an option? <laughs> right? That we can actually ignore an insult, that we can just let it go? Right? Like water off a duck's back. And when, we, when a person ignores an insult, what happens? Nothing, which is the whole point. Right? It, it doesn't be, cause a rift in the relationship. It doesn't get any traction. It, it just makes that insult just kind of fall flat. And it doesn't have the effect the person had hoped that it would. In some ways, I, I think the love that is required to overlook an offense, it's, it's like the bumpers on a car. Um, I meant to ask Aubrey if I could use this illustration, and I forgot. So I'll just do it. <laughs> and she will cover over this offense later. See how that works? <laughs> it's not a bad one, though. When we lived in South Carolina, one Sunday, we were leaving for church, uh, and Aubrey was backing out of our driveway, and our neighbor across the street was backing out of their driveway at the same time, and uh, neither of them saw the other coming. You know, blame it on the angle of the driveways or whatever it is. And the cars bumped into each other right in the middle of the street. Well, there was this little moment of panic, you know, just for a minute while we all worried what to do, you know, what, how are we going to deal with this? Both of us had places we needed to be. We didn't have time. And then we realized no damage had actually been done. Right? The bumpers bumped into each other, but we were going slowly, right? And that's what bumpers are for, to bump things. No damage had been done at all. And we realized, well, we didn't have to do anything. And we didn't know what to do. Well, we didn't have to do anything. We, could, we just went, oh, oh, sorry about that. And we went on our way. Right? And, and the issue was all over. I think one of the roles of love in the Christian life is that love plays the role of the bumper. Right? It allows you to sort of absorb this unintentional contact, these offenses, these insults, these sins. It allows you, at least with some of them, to, to just be able to absorb it and realize, okay, you know, no real damage has been done here. I'm going to choose to allow love to cover over this offense. I'm not going to make a big deal of it. I'm just going to go on my way. Right? It kind of protects us. 
It, it means we're not always in this mode of, of feeling very fragile, that, that the littlest thing is going to ruin our day. Love says, I can absorb this insult, right? I, I know how to ignore an insult like the prudent one does. But we must be clear, it is an act of love. To overlook an insult or an offense is an act of love toward the person who has offended you. It is your act of gospel love toward the person who has offended you. Right? Just to talk about something like this, to say that we can overlook an offense, I know the first question many people would ask would simply be, yes, but why would I? Right? Why would I do something like that? You know, the, their first instinct is if someone has offended me or damaged something of mine, whether that thing is just my feelings or my ego or, or some property of mine, you know, don't I have to do something? Don't I have to demand some kind of reparations for this? That they have broken it, they must make it right. That's how it feels a lot. That's how it feels. Uh, and, it, and it starts this constant cycle, right? Back and forth. You have offended me, I'm going to do something. Proverbs says, love can intervene and stop that cycle. Because love can simply overlook an offense. And it, it fails to get any traction. And it does that as an intentional act of love. Notice how many of these verses mention love, right? 10.12 says, love covers over an offense. That's love that is at work. Uh, ver- chapter 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. First uh, Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one, one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And then in the First Corinthians passage at the end, it says, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Isn't that the same thing? Love is wronged, it is offended, but it does not keep the record of that. Which means if we are keeping a record of wrongs against somebody, then we can't claim to be also loving them. Because love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep that record as a card to play later on. How do we do that? How? I mean, it sounds great in theory, but how do we do it? And the biblical answer would be this. That God has loved you even when you had offended him in the highest degree. God did not hold your sins against you. He held them against Christ in order that you might be free. And so for the Christian, the real operative question is no longer what about me and what about my rights. The operative issue now is has my heart been changed by the gospel? Have I experienced forgiveness that I now know how to extend that same forgiveness to others, even when they've offended me, even when they did it on purpose, and even when they were really mean about it and nasty. Right? Now, and here's what is so fascinating about Proverbs. Right? We hear that, and and the worldly response would be, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to appear weak. Right? To overlook an offense to the world, that's simply a sign of weakness. It's a sign that you're a doormat, People can take advantage of you. Why live that way? Look what um, the Lord says in Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. God, God would look at this, and he says, that does not look like weakness to me. He says, to me, that looks like glory, to overlook someone else's offense. To engage in that act of gospel love by granting forgiveness to a person that in no way deserves it. 
think this is just telling us God is so glorified when that actually happens. Difficult as it is, he says, that is part of your glory. Um, I wanted to look at one of the old commentators on this because uh, just to get out of our kind of culture and our society. Charles Bridges, he wrote this, Man is so warped in his judgment that to overlook an offense is thought to be an act of a fool or a weak person. But Solomon, a wise man and a king, declares that it's only a weakness to be able to bear nothing. It is glory to be able to overlook an offense. Right? That's not the act of a weak person to overlook an offense. That's incredibly hard to overlook an offense. Right? We can read this verse about love covering offenses and, and we can nod in agreement of how wonderful that sounds, but we all know the reality that to ignore an insult is simply not human nature. That does not come easily or naturally to any of us. Uh, most of the time, you know, if we're honest, we just don't have the, the grace, we don't have the patience, we don't have the love, we don't have that, that bumper to be able to absorb an offense without retaliating. Justin Martyr, who was one of the, the fathers of the early church, uh, when he was asked what his opinion was about the greatest of Christ's miracles, he said his greatest miracle that he performed was to be patient under trials. Right? Walking on water, yeah, it's all right. Feeding 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish, like, pretty good. But the fact that Jesus did not retaliate when he was insulted, that he was patient under trial, that he did not open his mouth against his accusers, he says that was the greatest and by far the most impressive of Jesus' miracles. Because here's the thing for us. Only when we have received mercy... Can we live like this? Only those who have received mercy can show mercy. Right? What, what's the difference between the person who's constantly demanding their rights, constantly keeping a detailed list of wrongs in order to make sure each one is dealt with in order, versus the person who can overlook an offense? I, I think the difference is that one person has been deeply changed, right, at the deepest heart level, by the mercy of God given to us in the gospel. That, that when God has showed his mercy to them, it hasn't merely you know, forgiven their sins and checked off that box of going to heaven. But it's changed them. It's changed them from the inside out. It does something to their character at a heart level. We can't just pretend that we're going to go out and ignore insults in our own strength. Because we're not. That doesn't, that's not something that the natural man is capable of doing. That's something that the spiritual person who's been changed by Christ can, can do. Right? But when we have, in fact, received the grace of God, when we have offended him, and he has chosen not to retaliate, but he has chosen to show love through giving his son, that does something to our ability to interact with others. Right? To, to show that same love then to others. Think about Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says, first of all, God demonstrates his love for us. And it doesn't say God feels kind of a warm, tingly sensation when he thinks about us. Because love is more than just an emotion. It says God demonstrates that love. He takes an action of gospel love towards us. Uh, Love means I do something for somebody that I ordinarily would not do. Uh, You know, maybe I lay down my life, I lay down my convenience, I lay down my desires... I put them before me, 
Why? Because I am demonstrating love through sacrificial living. That's what love is. Uh, And God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. We offended him. We were that one who had offended against him. And at that moment was when God decided to demonstrate through practical actions gospel love towards us and Christ died for us. And until that has become the, the foundational reality of our lives in our hearts. Until that happens, the whole idea of letting love cover an offense will just remain little more than kind of a fascinating idea, right? this, this kind of little nugget that we can toss around and, and contemplate, maybe give lip service to, but we won't be able to live that out. It's the gospel that, that changes us and allows us to do something as crazy as allowing love to cover over an offense. Now, how do we create an environment of grace where this is possible. I want to begin with an illustration. Um, and if you're, a, you know, if you're a Lakers fan, first of all, I'm sorry, but there was a great article this week in ESPN about the Lakers' culture of fear, distrust, and anxiety. And so here's the, this is the you know, illustration of what not to do. And it told the story of the first staff meeting two years ago when Magic Johnson was introduced as the president of basketball operations. So if you remember Magic Johnson, right, he was the face of the Lakers practically in the 80s. Great basketball player, huge charismatic smile, lights up a room, everybody loved Magic Johnson. Apparently everyone loved him until he became president. And then he was a really terrible person. They told the story of this first staff meeting when he was introduced as the new president. And it said... In his first staff meeting, he made it clear that he did not tolerate mistakes and he would not accept excuses. Anyone who did not agree with his philosophy was welcome to leave. Further, he reminded everyone that he had a huge stack of resumes on his desk and he could replace any of them at a moment's notice. Now, not surprisingly, when the the new boss introduces himself by threatening your jobs and letting you all know that you don't matter to him one whit, That is a doctrine that creates a certain culture. The doctrine is you have no security, and so the culture is fear and distrust and anxiety and blame because no one can afford to be wrong in that environment. If you're wrong, he doesn't tolerate that, and you'll be gone. So nobody can be wrong, so the entire culture is, if I mess up, I hide and I blame. Otherwise, I'm going to get it. Right? That's how doctrine has worked its way down into creating a culture in their environment. Uh, you're always on eggshells. Right? You can't afford to, to mess up. It'll cost you your job. You certainly can't afford to overlook an insult or an offense or sacrificially love others. That would probably cost you your job as well if you ended up taking the fall for somebody else's mistake. In other words, it's a works-based environment of fear. Now just contrast that for a moment with a gospel environment of grace. When you first meet God through Jesus Christ, think about the first thing, as it were, that God would say to you. God says to you that he has loved you with an everlasting love. That salvation means you're not merely his servants, but he calls you friends, he adopts you as his sons and daughters, He brings you into his own family. He sits you around his table. 
in fact, he says very explicitly that there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from his love. Now, how does that change the environment that God has created? Right? How does that doctrine filter down into uh, the culture of the family of God? Right? Magic Johnson says, if you mess up, I've got a pile of resumes. I'm just waiting to replace you. God says, you know, it's not about if you mess up. He says, I already know all of the worst things about you. There's nothing you can do to surprise God. And yet, he says, I still love you. In fact, I demonstrate that love because while you were still a sinner, I sent Jesus Christ, my only son, to take that punishment, wrath, and condemnation that you deserved. And therefore, you are fully secure and that there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from my love. And that becomes then not just another theological point of doctrine, but that becomes the foundation for what it means to be a part of the family of God. Right? That, that determines the way that we now live. Right? How do we talk to God? How do we talk to one another in this family? It's determined by this, this ultimate security. Romans chapter 5 says this. It says, Since then we have been justified by faith. It says two things result from that. Uh, first, we have peace with God. You think anyone in the Lakers ever thought they had peace with Magic Johnson? No. But we have peace because we've been justified by faith. And we have obtained access into this grace in which we now stand. Obtained access into this grace in which we now stand. It says, because of justification by faith, we now stand in grace. Right? It's a culture of grace. That grace for Christians, it's not just a doctrine we believe, but it's the air that we breathe. And it's what defines who we are as a church. And this makes all the difference. Again, Imagine the scenario where mistakes are made and someone's trying to, to pin more of the blame onto you. What do you do? What do you do? What can you do? Right? If it's a culture of fear and distrust and anxiety, no one can take that blame. Everyone's going to be you know, at each other's throat, defending themselves, trying to blame shift. Their job is at stake. But what does it look like in the church? What does it look like in our families? If we are establishing then this culture where grace becomes the air that we breathe, I would suggest that in that culture, we wouldn't need to defend ourselves at the expense of others. Right? Because ultimately, we know nothing is at stake. Right? Ultimately, nothing is at stake. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Not the biggest mistake that we make can separate us from that. Which is why Paul asks rhetorically in Romans 8, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Who can? And he knows the answer is that, well, people might bring charges, but they don't land with God because God is the one who justifies you. And he already knew everything about you. And that means that, that in a culture of grace, we have freedom. Ultimately, it means we have the freedom to be wrong. It means we have the freedom to admit that, yes, that, that was my mistake, that we don't have to blame shift. The freedom to be wrong is one of the greatest freedoms we have as Christians. It's the freedom of knowing that no matter what happens, God still loves us. God gave Jesus to die for these sins that we still commit. Right? And because we have this security, we're free then. Right? We have the freedom of repentance. 
We have the freedom of confession. We're not hiding. We're not living in the darkness. We have the freedom to come into the light with Christ. Uh, we have the freedom to cover over other people's offenses. Right? We're not kind of angling somehow for a higher rung on the ladder if the boss likes us more. Right? We're not worried about getting knocked down a few rungs if we get blamed for something. And so we have the freedom now to say, I'm just going to cover over that offense. They've offended me. I'm not going to use that as my uh, uh, you know, social capital against them to somehow improve my standing or somehow degrade theirs. Uh, we can cover over offenses uh, because now we can afford to. Right? There's nothing at stake. There's no lines in the sand. Nothing's at stake. And this is a, a power that we get only through the gospel. Right? Only through justification by faith. Only through believing that we're saved by his grace, not by our works, not by our goodness, not by our position on the rung or on the ladder or wherever it is. Now, how does this play out? Let me just uh, suggest two things. That, that my desire for us is that we will cultivate a culture of grace in our church and that it would be a culture that we cultivate in our families, in our church and in our families. Uh, look at 17, verse 9, Proverbs 17, 9. It says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Now, this makes very clear that there are actual real-life implications for the way that we choose to love others. Right? That, that if we do it, uh, we seek love. If we choose not to, that real friendships can be broken over it. It can separate real, close friends. Uh, which means that this is an act of gospel love that always plays itself out in relationships and in communities. Right? Where people are close, where people know one another. Right? And those are precious relationships. But they can be broken uh, when we repeat a matter, when we fail to love um, you know, we always think, at least I always think, it. sometimes it's easier to love a stranger, right? When you know that, like, this is not a relationship that's going to have a long history, that, that things are really going to matter, it's, it's a lot more hard to love those who are close to us. To love those who we know we're going to have a long-term relationship with. Then it's, it's, it's more challenging, right? Because it feels like there's more at stake. But my goal is for us as a church to be cultivating this kind of gospel love in our church, even to the point where it, be, it feels far more possible. Right? This, is what, this is how we know when we've gotten there, when it just feels possible to overlook an offense. Right? To the extent that that feels so just impossible, we know we haven't made it to that point yet. But, but when we get to that point where it just feels natural, it feels possible to overlook an offense, we know that that doctrine of grace that we believe is actually filtering down into our hearts, into our relationships, into our, the sort of unspoken expectations. And I want us to do this in our church, and I hope it happens in our families. We even see that a little bit in this verse where it says, he who repeats a matter separates close friends. That word, close friends, it's actually one word, aloop, a great Hebrew word, aloop. It means bosom companion. That close friends almost doesn't get at it. It's used elsewhere in, in Proverbs to describe a spouse. Right? That, that's your bosom companion. That's your 
a loop. It, it can be talking about the culture of our families, the culture of our, our own homes. Now, take that verse and uh, combine that with 28.13. 28.13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We put those together and here's how it works. You, you allow love to cover over the other person's con- uh, offenses. But you never cover over your own, right? Whoever conceals his transgressions won't prosper. That's what's so easy, right? We want to cover over all our mistakes so no one sees them and we want to expose everyone else's and make sure we get paid back for them. Proverbs says we flip that, right? If we truly love someone, we, we never cover over our mistakes. We bring them to the light. We're honest. We ask for forgiveness. But we do allow, allow love to cover other people's mistakes. Can you even imagine what a, a culture of a family or a church would be like if that was the general rule? Right? That nobody covered their own mistakes. We always brought them to light. We asked for forgiveness. We offered to make restitution. But everybody was always actively trying to cover over the mistakes that other people made. Wouldn't that be a... What's even the right word? It'd be a comfortable place to live. It'd be a, a just an inviting place to live, a place where it's easy to love and to actually demonstrate acts of love, where it's easy to forgive, where it's easy to show grace to one another, where it's easy to say, "Listen, we are all sinners, but we come before the throne of Jesus Christ on equal footing, and each one of us is here only by His grace. None of us has earned this. None of us has done anything to deserve it." But the ground is level at the foot of the cross and we come and we say, Lord, it's only by the goodness of Christ. It's only by the righteousness that he provides. None of our own. And when that filters down then into our lives, that's what it means to have a gospel culture. Right? And, and gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. I don't think it's creates it automatically. It's something we have to be intentional about. It's something we have to cultivate. It's something we have to ask the questions. What is our culture and how does it reflect our doctrine? And what changes do we need to make? So that's the goal now in in reading through Proverbs over these next weeks, months, whatever it takes us. What do they expose about our culture? And how do we bring it into line with gospel doctrine? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the promises that are also very precious to us, that are are sweet, that give life to our hearts. We thank you for the, the cross. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that that you are faithful to every one of your promises, and though we are faithless, you still remain faithful. And that you have brought us together not of our own merits, but through the merit of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be intentional, uh, to take the forgiveness that we have received and, and be intentional in now sharing that generously with those who are around us. Lord, may we love, not in words, but in, in, in truth, in actions, and in deeds, that the love of Christ may be our joy. We pray in his name. Amen.